right, good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to, let's see, Gospel of John, chapter 14, the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. I hope you are as venturous today as I am as we are going to be covering verses 15 right through to the end of the chapter. I want to begin by um, first reading these uh, verses with you, and then following that we can look at each of them closer and see what God has for us today. So, beginning in verse... 15. This is the reading of God's living word. And we start again with the words of our Lord. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled either. Let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Wow. We are in the section of John's gospel often referred to as the upper room discourse. And in this upper room, we get to peer behind the curtains, if you will, into one of the most intimate scenes in all of scripture. As the Lord Jesus is huddled up with his closest now 11 disciples in the very night He will be betrayed and arrested. It is the night before his crucifixion. His hour is all but upon him. And these are the final instructions that the Lord has to give to his own. 
He has just told them that he is leaving. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And after three plus years of providing everything for them, the time of his departure is now at hand, and he will be returning to the Father. And, and though the Lord has been preparing them for this moment for quite some time, Luke 18 tells us they didn't understand it as his sayings were veiled. They were hidden to them. But now that his hour is upon them, this veil is being partly lifted from their eyes. They are probably in a state of shock. They are confused and their hearts have become greatly troubled. And so in order to strengthen them and to assure them so that they just don't completely collapse. Jesus unveils a series of divine, heavenly promises. And not just to them, but to you and I today. These are the promises that have never been rescinded. These are the promises that don't have an expiration date on the shelf life of them. These promises are still in effect and directly apply to each and every one of us today. In fact, in chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer after the Lord has finished giving all of these divine promises, he seals it in a prayer to the Father praying, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word through the teaching of the New Testament. Now, you would think that the disciples might be the ones who are seeking to encourage the one who is about to die. But, but it's the other way around. <laughs> it's the one who is about to die through the cross with its sin-bearing and separation from God the Father who will spend his final moments encouraging them. And doesn't this just reflect the heart of Christ? The, the love of Christ, that, that he's more concerned for them and, and bolstering them and bringing peace to them and promises to them than he is for himself. And so these are his promises, first to the eleven and then for all who would believe in him through their word. They are certain and they are sure. And not only is he the giver of these promises, he is the guarantor of these promises. He, he is the one who ensures the successful fulfillment of these promises. This isn't like a politician who's overselling and underdelivering. <laughs> Jesus isn't giving them some kind of a, a catchphrase or a hallmark card so that they can feel good. Every word that he says here is rock solid and fixed by the eternal decrees and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are divinely given. You and I can, can lean in heavy on these. We can rest we can build our life on these. So as we walk through these seven promises, I want to set each one before you. And I want you to notice first the promise of assurance. The promise of assurance, that's what verse 15 is. And again, this is a little bit veiled. Jesus begins with um, really a, a searching of the heart challenge. He says, if you love me you will keep my commandments obedience is of course a hallmark of a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the defection of Judas now from the upper room there no doubt still remained uncertainty to his previous statement that one of you will betray me you will recall no one at the table knew 
why the Lord had said to Jesus, uh, Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so they're still wondering, who, who is the betrayer? Surely it is not I, Lord. And so Jesus gives here in verse 15, the sure test to discern, to determine, to know who is a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the separation of the wheat from the tares. Though loving Jesus is not the same as keeping his commandments, it proceeds and and gives rise to keeping his commandments. So he says here in verse 15, if you love me. That's a statement of saving faith. That's what saving faith is. It is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. It is to love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything in this world. It is to love the Lord your God more than anyone in this world. That the Lord Jesus Christ is your supreme affection. And that you have given to him supreme devotion and allegiance and loyalty. That's what it is to exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is to love the Lord your God. And when Jesus says, if you love me, He is, in essence, defining for us what then is true saving faith. Because loving the Lord your God isn't a matter of doing a list of commands. It's a matter of delighting in a glorious Savior. (laughs) Loving Christ isn't some intellectual exercise or decision that you go through and you check the box off and say, yep, I believe in that. Yep, I agree with that. And... uh, no, it goes much deeper than an intellectual decision or, or something that you're, you're weighing in your mind. In fact, James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and they shudder. No, true saving faith goes deeper than just the mind. There, there is in the heart the strongest love and adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you love Christ more than life itself. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. That's who we lived for. And that's what it is to be a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you Love me. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said these strong words, which really demonstrates who a true disciple is. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He repeated the same idea in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, yes, hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus will say time and time again, you cannot come after me unless I am your number one supreme priority and passion in your life. He will not be second fiddle to anyone. And what he is saying is, is that your love for Jesus is more important than your own comforts and your own pleasures and your own desires. That your love for Jesus Christ rises above everything else. He, he is a jealous God. You will not be second on your list. Jesus will either be at the top or 
he won't be on the list at all. These are promises for those who love Jesus. It is, he must increase and I must decrease. So he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here's the evidence or, or here's the proof of your genuine love for Christ. It's the second half of the verse. You will keep my commandments. And, and please note the certainty of this. You will keep my commandments. It, it's not you should or you might. You will. And why will you keep my commandments? Because he's giving you a new heart. In the new birth, God took out that old heart of stone, which you were born with, and he put in a, a new heart of flesh in you, and a new spirit. And when you receive that new heart, it comes with brand new desires, and brand new pleasures. The, the new heart loves Christ. The new heart suddenly loves his every word. And miraculously, now your, your strongest instinct is to please him, to live for him, to follow him, to do what is pleasing in his sight. This word keep in verse 15 is the word tereo in the Greek. It, it, it's really a military word. It pictures someone who is posted on watch. He's trying to keep an eye out for any such encroaching danger. It means to watch over, to guard, to keep, and to observe. It's synonymous with to obey. And please note also, he says, you will keep my commandments. Commandments is in the plural. It refers to the full counsel of God. It refers to all the commandments that he's given. These are not suggestions. They are the distinguishing and defining marks of the narrow path that leads us actually into the fullness of God's blessings. Every step of obedience leads you into the epicenter of the will of God. Everyone. In fact, it, it leads you into the fullness of his blessings for you. So he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the promise of assurance. That you will be able to look at your own life and determine whether or not that you have an authentic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a God-given desire within your heart, within your soul, to live for Christ and to follow him? It is ultimately what made the difference between Peter and Judas. It doesn't mean that we don't ever fail to keep a commandment. It just means that when we do fail, we weep and we confess and we repent. We're broken hearted over it. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So the first promise that Jesus makes here to these disciples is a promise really of assurance that they may know that they truly love him, not by their fickle feelings or emotions or their decisions. That can be a roller coaster if that's what it depends on. But there is this inner, habitual, longing desire to lovingly pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and to keep his commands. In his first letter to the church, the apostle John emphasizes the inseparable link between love and obedience. It says in 1 John 2, 3 through 5, by this we know that we have Come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. So promise number one the Lord gives us is assurance of a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the mark of a true disciple. He is saying to them and to us today, do you have a heart for me? If you do, you will obey me. Not out of obligation or even out of your own determination but out of the overflow of your love for me, you will keep my commandments. By this we may know that we are in him. So that's promise number one. Here's the second promise we see, and it's in verses 16 through 17. The Lord also promises them help. He's not asking them to follow him or to obey him and to be his witness when he's not physically, when they are all on their own. Yes, he is leaving them and they're still greatly troubled by this. So not only does he want to assure them that they are truly his disciples, but he promises them help in his absence. So in verse 16, he says, and I will ask the father. And this is when he returns to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, after the resurrection, after the ascension, when I am seated on my throne at the right hand of the Father, I will ask the Father. And he will give you another helper. This is significant. He, the Father, will give you, right? Meaning, there's nothing to earn here. It will be a grace gift. He will give you, and then I also want you to notice the next word, see in your Bible there, that word another, and he will give you another helper. In the English, when we say another, we might be saying, um, give me another one of the same kind of that. Or we might be saying uh, another as in, I need another one of a different kind. That one doesn't work, I need another one. But we use that same word, another, in the English. In the Greek, it's distinguished, and, and it's very important here. Because heretios describes another of a completely different kind, a different nature. <laughs> And that's not what Jesus is saying here. In contrast to Heretos, Jesus used the word alos. As he is saying to his disciples, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. My father is going to give you another helper. Who is the exact same nature as me and my father. He is co-equal with me and the Father, who, who possesses all the same divine attributes that I possess. Another who is equal with me in love and in wisdom and in truth and in power and in grace. In fact, Jesus will go on to say that it will be to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And we talked about this briefly last week, and for the disciples, they must have thought, how could it possibly be to our advantage that you're leaving us? And it is because in his incarnation, in his humiliation, he was physically restricted to the body that he had, a single body. He could only be physically there at one place at one time with one of the disciples, And if he leaves and goes to the right hand of the Father and the Helper comes, the Helper can be everywhere all at the same time. So today, when this service is over, the Lord goes home with you. 
He goes home with you. He goes home with you. He goes home with you. He goes home with you. So he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He is co-equal with me. He is co-equal with my Father. He, he, he is not the junior member of the Trinity team. All right? He is all that I am, though he is not me. God is equal yet distinct in three different persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this word helper, it's the Greek word para... I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. it. It's a word anyways that's impossible to translate into the English language, never mind into one word. The word literally means one called alongside to help. This is who the helper is. So when translators tried to describe him, and as we just sang in our song, your translation might say helper, comforter, counselor, intercessor, advocate, encourager, teacher, strengthener. And the word helper is kind of our default word just to try to encompass all that you need. Is that broad enough? Is that big enough for you? Let me remind you, God is with his people. And he is here to comfort, to help, to intercede. He is your advocate, your defense attorney. 1 John 2, 1 also says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he also has not stopped working on our behalf. Again, the Trinity, the full counsel of God, has the same will and purpose for his people. Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus always lives to make intercession for his own. And you don't have to go looking for the helper. Notice in verse 16, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. What a promise. To be with you, meaning to be in the closest partnership with you, meaning he can't be any closer to you. He is with us, and as we'll see in the next verse, he is in us. That Wherever we go for the rest of our lives, he is with us with the fullness of all that he is ready to supply everything you need. This is stunning. It it would be impossible to exaggerate this promise. (laughs) It would be impossible for me to overstate this, that he will give us a helper to be with you forever he will never leave them this is a permanent relationship a seal ephesians 4 verse 30 says until the day of redemption notice in verse 17 as jesus now gives further clarification unless there be any misunderstanding of who the helper is even the spirit of truth. Truth is one of the major characteristic operations of the Spirit in every believer's heart. He is the source of all truth, the revealer of all truth, the teacher of all truth, the interpreter of all truth. He is to guide you in all truth. He has a monopoly on the truth because he is the truth. Remember last week when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is further evidence of I will give you another helper. Someone like me. 
the connection is made here. The spirit is also the truth. In Romans 8, we see the spirit described, the spirit of God. And then just a little bit further, he calls it the spirit of Christ in the very same verse. Talking about the Holy Spirit of God. All that Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Here he says, we are sending you another helper. Co-equal with the Son and the Father, and he will guide you in my truth. And then notice what the Lord says next. He says, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. These are the promises of Christ that are given only to true believers in him. That's it. The world, on the other hand, has no partnership with the Holy Spirit. The world has no help. The world has no comforter. The world has no teacher. The world has no counselor. The world has no intercessor. The world has no advocate. The world is on its own. The world is under the binding deception of the devil. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and in their case... The God, little g, Satan of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The world on its own is in total darkness and it cannot understand spiritual truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And it's essentially what Jesus is saying here. The world has no truth in it because the Spirit of truth is not in it. For Jesus says, because it neither sees him nor knows him him and just as the world failed to recognize jesus as the christ the son of god so also it would fail to recognize the holy spirit but jesus says but you know him (laughs) you you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I want to just pause here for just a moment. See that word dwells. It's the Greek word uh, meno. It can be translated uh, stays or abides. Uh, it means to uh, remain. It, it, it's a present tense verb, meaning the Holy Spirit didn't just show up on the day of Pentecost. The the Holy Spirit has always been. He was never created. In fact, we see him in the beginning in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the, the face of the waters. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The Holy Spirit was in the world. He was here before Pentecost. He was here during the ministry of Christ and There's no way these disciples could have even followed Jesus, even up to this point, without the Holy Spirit being with them, though not in them yet. They couldn't even take one step of the Christian life without the Spirit. Do you think their flesh was suddenly somehow drawn or... or or stimulated towards the Lord Jesus Christ to leave everything behind, to forsake all, and to follow him for over three years? No! The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to them. But Jesus says, you know him already. For he abides 
with you right now. And on the day of Pentecost, he will be in you. Listen, the only way that you and I can possibly live the life that God has called us to live is by the indwelling eternal presence and power of the Holy Spirit within us. So they needed to hear this promise because they were in for the challenge of their life. In just 50 days from now, they were going to take on dead apostate Judaism and its full power of the religious system. They were going to take on the dominance of the the Roman Empire. And they were going to take on Satan and his hordes of demons. They were but a handful of fishermen and a tax collector and a bunch of nobodies. How in the world are they going to pull this off? It would be greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Well, they need even more promise. And Jesus, knowing this, is just getting started. So not only does he give them the promise of assurance and the promise of help, now he gives them the third promise as he promises this closeness this this relational closeness and you remember back in chapter 13 that tender moment when Jesus said to his disciples little children I will be with you only a little longer little children and like a father leaving his own children Jesus promises the disciples that they will never be alone and he's coming back for them And so he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And uh, this is kind of a veiled illusion indicating his approaching death. I'm leaving you, but I am not leaving you as orphans, meaning I am not leaving you unattended. I'm not leaving you uncared for. I, I am not leaving you unprovided for. No, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wow. And and this is another veiled allusion to the the resurrection and his appearance, that he will come back from the dead and there will be uh, multiple post-resurrection appearances by the Lord Jesus Christ in which he makes even further deposits into their life. In fact, uh, we will read later in John chapter 20 that he will breathe on them the Holy Spirit and give them an even greater measure of the Spirit just to even get them to Pentecost. And in verse 19, he says, yet a little while. He, He is just hours from the cross and the world will see me no more. Now, this is the reference to the fact that after his death, no unbeliever ever saw him alive. Now, if I was Jesus, I would have walked right down Main Street. I would have headed right to Jerusalem, headed right for that temple. I would have headed right in there and looked for Caiaphas and the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I would have definitely found Pilate and here I am. (laughs) But Jesus did not make himself known to one single unbeliever. He only appeared to his own. But notice what he says at the end of verse 19. But you will see me. (laughs) He made... Uh, many post-resurrection appearances. In fact, he appeared to 500 people at the one time, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. You will see me, Jesus says, and because I live, you also will live. Meaning the very same power, the very same spirit that is going to raise me from the dead will be the very same power and the very same spirit who will raise you back to life because in three days from now 
I'm going to destroy death forever. Death will have no power over my people. So because I live, you also will live forever. <laughs> I mean, talk about closeness. <laughs> this is pregnant with the love that Christ has for his own. <laughs> and he's not done. Verse 20, in that day, referring to after his resurrection, in that day you will know that I am in my Father. After the resurrection and after his ascension, there will be this restored relationship in heaven and fellowship with the Father. No longer this, this breach and this temporary separation on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No. There will be now a, a restoration of this relationship as the Father and the Son will be rejoined in heaven. In that day, he says, you will know that I am in my Father. And then that's what he says next. And you in me and I in you. This speaks to the even closer relationship that they will have with Jesus Christ after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection and ascension, because instead of having Jesus beside them, they are going to have Jesus inside of them. They will no longer have him merely at their side. They will have him in their hearts. And they will have him there by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we may think, man, if I could have just lived 2,000 years ago, you know, if I could have just seen Jesus or, or, or if I could have been under the boat and, and seen him a, a walk on water, and uh, I'd just be so much closer with the Lord. But Jesus tells us something different here. He says, it is far better for you on this side of the cross. Because now Jesus says, you are in me, and I am in you. You can't be any closer than that. <laughs> and do you realize that, that you have this kind of intimate, personal relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ? That, 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 that he has moved into your life and he will never move out? What a promise. Jesus says, you are in me and I am in you. This is what it is to be a disciple of the Lord. You are never on your own. You might be a widow or a widower. He has not left you as an orphan. Maybe you are single or even divorced. He has not left you an orphan. Maybe you are in a, a loveless marriage. He has not left you an orphan. You've got not just a roommate. You've got a heartmate. You've got one who is living inside of you who's everything that God is. Well, this leads us right up to number four in the promise of love. And in verses 21 to 24, lest they, they feel further abandoned by this announcement of his departure, Jesus now assures them of their, his love for them. I mean, in any broken relationship in our fallenness and of our flesh, the one who is left often feels like, what's wrong with me? Why would he leave me? And Jesus, who knows the heart and understands human nature and could understand exactly what it is that these disciples would be feeling. First, though, he affirms what he said back in verse 15. He, he, 
he says this four times in this text. So first he reaffirms again what he said in verse 15 and verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. I don't need to comment on that any further. But notice at the, the end of verse 21. And he who loves me, that means he who has saving faith in me, will be loved by my father. You see, there is a special saving love that God has only for his children. There is a broad, general, common grace love that God has for the whole world. I mean, he even loves animals. He feeds them. Common grace is that we have the sun and rain. But for this verse to be true, you must understand Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There is a distinction in the love of God. It is not a one size that fits all. And those who love Jesus are loved by my Father. There is a, a, a tight circle of those he died on the cross for. And he knows every single one of them by name. And in this tight circle of the love of God that is redeeming, saving, forgiving, pardoning, providing, supplying, guiding, guarding, preserving love that he has. It's this tight circle, and it's reserved exclusively for those who love his son. Do you love his son? Yes. Then the Father has great love for you. Great love. And at the end of verse 21, Jesus goes on to say, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So again, we see the Father and the Son are one in purpose, Jesus says, if you love me, then the Father will love you, and therefore, I will love you. And he says, and I will make myself known to you. So, in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So, as John points out, this isn't Judas Iscariot. (laughs) Rather, this is uh, Judas, the son of James. Uh, sometimes called Thaddeus. But at any rate, Judas assumed uh, here that Jesus is speaking of returning physically. Jesus, uh, again, setting up his earthly kingdom now. They, They all want it now. So he couldn't understand then how Jesus would manifest himself to them, but not to the rest of the world. How is this going to work? So in very Jesus replies, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. We see this again. He will not manifest himself to those who refuse to love or to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the third time now in the section of verses where Jesus has linked obedience with genuine love for Christ. Do you think it's important? (laughs) And not only will he love those who love him, the Father also will love him. And then Jesus says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And this is to say, if you will live in obedience to me out of the heart of love for me, then we are going to move into your life in ways that you've never even seen before. You see, ultimately, God's not after performance. He wants a relationship. one that you experience the love of Christ, one that he moves into your heart with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The full counsel of God wants to abide in you and he wants you to know him. So in verse 24, whoever does not love me, and as he says this, he probably has in mind Judas, There is a clarification that he's making here. 
So they are not going to be thrown for a loop about how do we explain Judas then? What happened to Judas? And he will explain Judas more fully when we look at next week's verses in John 15, the, the branch that does not bear fruit and is cast into the fire. That's Judas. And, and here is Judas right here in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. No, he goes and does his own thing, does it his own way. He uses Jesus to get what he wants. He uses Jesus to advance his own ends. But to keep Jesus' words, that was not on Judas's radar. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father, Father's who sent me. It, it underscores the seriousness of, of not obeying the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because every word that Christ has spoken has been given to him by his Father in heaven. And so to disobey the words of Christ is actually rebellion against heaven and against the Father. That's how serious it is. And so Jesus is underscoring for them, but you do love me, and you keep my words. And because of this, the Father loves you, and I love you, and we will make our home with you. If any of us here today doubt the, the love of God that Christ has for you, I, I simply point you to the cross. The greatest demonstration of God's love that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You are so deeply loved and, and nothing has been held back from God's provision for you. Well, I know we've got a cookie swap to go here, so you're going to have to listen quicker. The fifth, <laughs> the fifth promise is the promise of truth. And we're going to see this in verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Throughout the, the ministry, Jesus has been the source of all truth. But, but, but how are they going to remember everything that he's taught them for the last three years? I mean, you can't even remember everything I just said for the last three hours. <laughs> Tim always gets it. So, so as they're scrambling, how are we going to remember this when he's gone? Verse 26, but the helper, ah, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Wow. It will be a supernatural work by the Holy Spirit of God. A bringing back to the, the forefront of their minds as many of these disciples will write books in our New Testament. All of them will go on to preach even before the New Testament canon has been written and completed and collected. And they will be able to remember everything that Jesus has taught them. The Gospels will be written. The, the epistle of John 1st, 2nd, and, and 3rd John will be written. Uh, John writes the book of Revelation. Peter writes 1st and 2nd Peter. And everything that Peter will say to Mark, Mark will write the, the Gospel of Mark. And as Luke will research and interview the disciples for the Gospel of Luke, the Holy Spirit will bring back with perfection everything that Jesus has said to them. I mean, this is incredible. And not only that, but after his resurrection, we see this in verses like uh, in Luke talking um, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, will open up their hearts and their minds. And he will teach them everything. He will take them all through the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And he will say, you see, I am in them. I am all throughout this book. And he will open their eyes, what was veiled to them. They will now understand accurately and correctly and with precision 
because the Spirit and the Son are in one mind and they are in one truth and in one doctrine and in one wisdom and it is the same Holy Spirit who lives inside each one of you today. And so when you hear false teaching, when you're watching your television, there there should be alarms going off inside. And if you know him, and if you know his word, he will make it plain to you. If this is of man or this is of God. 1 John 2.20 says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. All of you. It really bothers me when people think only certain people have been anointed. You, you have all been anointed with the Spirit of God. Don't let anyone tell you that you're less than. Or that you're not capable with what God has given you. He goes on to say in verses 26 through 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything. Now, God has called and gifted his church with men to teach, but we are simply secondary teachers, a small t. There is only one primary teacher, capital T, and that is the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he will take the teaching of gifted men, and he will take the truth of God's word and he will guide you in all truth promise number six is the promise of peace Jesus is going back to the father and and all the disciples except maybe John are going to be murdered martyred John will end up on the island of Patmos and will spend his final years doing hard time in solitary confinement I mean terror is up ahead for them Victory is theirs, but tribulation is right around the corner. They will be beaten, betrayed themselves, imprisoned, and ultimately they will be murdered for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, knowing all of this is going to take place, and he knows they already have troubled hearts, promises them his peace. His peace. This is an amazing promise. Verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is not um, the objective peace with God, um, the result of justification by faith. No, that's not what he's talking about. This this is subjective peace of God. This is an inner calmness of the heart in the midst of the storms. And in the midst of the raging, turbulent storms of life, he is giving us an unfathomable inner calmness tranquility of peace and soul that cannot be explained apart from him he says my peace i give to you it's not just a peace like his no he gives us his peace it's the very peace that was in his own heart and soul jesus has peace for you He can come walking on the water and speak into your troubled hearts and say, peace, be still. I know many of us have needed to experience that. He says, not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Meaning all that the world gives is temporary, a cheap imitation of true peace. So Jesus says, take my peace, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Most of 28 is repetition of what we've already covered, but I do want to comment on the end of the verse, for the Father is greater than I. Cults take this verse and twist it and This does not mean greater in attributes or greater in essence nor greater in deity. Rather, he is greater than in office, greater in role as Jesus is in his humiliation and in his submission to the greater authority of his father. 
Luke 2, 49. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He said that when he was 12. John 8, 28. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And when the disciples asked, how should we pray? Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Father, Son, Spirit are all equally God. But here 2,000 years ago, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And in his incarnation, he comes in submission to the glory of God the Father. There's much more there, but let's just jump to verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And even this will bring uh, peace on them as they will see the fulfillment of everything that Jesus had told them come to pass. And when they look back upon the cross and they look back upon the resurrection and they look back on the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, they will look at each other and say, it was exactly like he said it was going to happen. <laughs> this is what he said. What, what a confirmation that will bring them a vast amount of peace. In their troubles. Lastly, we will close with the promise of total sovereignty. The promise of total sovereignty. God is in total control. Thank you for hanging in here. This is an analysis that really deserves our full attention. As again, these are not only promises to them, but to all who come after them. But the last thing that Jesus wants them to know, and he wants you to know is that everything is under total control of the sovereign Lord who knows the end from the beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega. All right? I mean, I need to know that today as we look out in the direction that our world is heading in. It's a disaster out there. And they needed to know that the Son of Man, the Son of God, who would be taken from them in the garden of Gethsemane, who would be led off as a lamb for the slaughter, they needed to know that everything is under his control. So in verse 30 he says, I will no longer talk much with you. In other words, the, the, the curtain is closing. The time of the end is now here, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. I love that. He has no claim on me. None of this is taking Jesus by surprise. He understands this is all a part of the sovereign work and plan of God. That God created the devil for this very moment that he's fulfilling. It is his reason for existence. God is using the devil to carry out his own eternal purposes, to bring, bring about the, the, the greatest good that will ever come over our lives, which will be the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And please note, he doesn't say Judas is coming to betray me. He says, for the ruler of this world is coming. He understands that the power behind Judas is the evil one himself, Satan. And the devil has no claim on me. Verse 31. But I do. As the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know. That I love the Father. It was for this very hour. That Christ had come into the world. He was born. In order to die. He came on a mission of salvation that would require the sinless, perfect 
blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed upon the cross that he would bear on the tree for his people's sins. And yet Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. (laughs) He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and yet he was so determined to die for us so that we would be with him forever. It will take us all of eternity to begin to express one iota of gratitude that we owe to him. Yep. If you have never called upon the name of the Lord, the one that we just read about here in Scripture, and not the one you see on the TV set, I would beg of you to cry out to him, to to ask him, to beg him, to give you a new heart. Ask the Lord Jesus to reveal himself to you while his word is still so close to your heart and Jesus is in our presence right now. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 tells us, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We are all but sinners saved by his grace. Ask that his mercy lays it upon your heart and covers you not by your works, but by his righteousness. I want to invite the leaders down front here today. If you need the prayers of the church this morning, um, come forward. We would love to um, pray with you. Please stand as we sing our song of invitation, Living Hope.